for your support in that. Okay, we're continuing in Daniel, and in Daniel 6, which famously is the lion's den. It's one of the stories that I remember very, very early on as a kid growing up in church and in Sunday school, hearing Daniel on the lion's den. And um, This whole series has a one headline, which is living for God in a godless world. Um, we, if, if people think that we live somehow in a Christian society, I wonder what society they're looking at, because I don't see that. I just don't see that. We live in an increasingly godless society. But we as Christians need to n- figure out what it is to live more radically, purposefully for God, even while our society is sliding in the opposite direction. Yeah? And that, I think, is where Daniel, the book of Daniel is key. Because a, a whole tens of thousands of people were, expo- were exiled from Jerusalem, from Judea, to Babylon. Many of them lived in areas outside of the city of Babylon, but a number of them, including Daniel and his three friends, were brought into the very heart of the city, into the very core of the government, and were given responsible positions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Um, Azariah, Mishael, and yes, the other one, Hananiah, yeah, uh, by the Hebrew names, will become became advisors to the king. And three of them fade out of history after their their, their fiery trial. They were thrown into fiery furnace. They were Daniel wasn't. He was somewhere else. Uh, but now we're following Daniel through into his old age, and there's some remarkable things that happened to Daniel in his 80s, and even when he's pushing 90 or turning 90. So let's uh, pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that your word may strengthen us so we too will live with passion, with faith for God in a godless world. We need strength. We need courage. We need wisdom. We need grace to live well for you. When tide, the the atmosphere, the the politics, all sorts of things are pushing against us. And yet these men that we read of in the book of Daniel did it, and did it well. Encourage our hearts too to do the same, we pray. Amen. So in chapter 5 we were told how the kingdom of Babylon fell to the armies of Cyrus, the Persian, as Belshazzar hosted a great feast and served the drinks, the wine, in vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem decades, nearly 70 years before. The the emperor Cyrus appointed Darius as the local king in Babylon. So now I'm going to read you chunks of Daniel and explain, and then we'll have some application to it. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. They're like local governors to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, three governors. There wasn't a cabinet of 12 or 20 or 24. There were three governors, of whom Daniel was one. Let me remind you, Daniel is now at least 80. 
that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. This is all about accountability, isn't it? Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. We know what spirit that is. It should be a capital S, shouldn't it? The Holy Spirit was with him, helping him and guiding him and equipping him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. He thought, I'll make him prime minister. I'll make him second to myself. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They're trying, to, they're trying to demote him. They're trying to bring about his destruction. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel excelled and Darius was minded to appoint him as overall governor. But the other two and the 120 beneath them, I, I, I always used to think that satraps were sounded better as sad rats, really. So these 120 sad rats were, were conspiring against a godly man called Daniel. He was an alien among them. He was the Hebrew. He was the worshiper of Yahweh. He was not a follower of their gods, and they look for a charge against him. But like the Jerusalem authorities with the Lord Jesus, centuries later, nearly 500 years later, they couldn't find anything against Daniel. So they laid a trap that caused him to choose obedience to God over obedience to Darius. They devised a trap, just as, again, the Jewish authorities devised traps to trap Jesus. None of them worked. So there's a foreshadowing here of the story of Jesus in the gospel. So these governors and the satraps thronged before the king. Imagine it, they all pile in to, oh, let me in too. They they all want to be in in on the the deal. And they said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. That's the way the people went around in those days. If you talk to me like that, I think, what planet are you from? King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom the administrators and the satraps and the counselors and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, in other words, whoever asks anything except of you, whoever prays to anybody or anything other than you, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, obviously they had some sort of menagerie, in the gardens. And by the way, lions lived in the Middle East right through the Old Testament years. If you think in the scriptures, those of you who know the scriptures, Samson killed a lion, David killed a lion. Lions were in the Middle East until not many centuries, not many decades before the time of Jesus. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Kingdoms in those days were so sure of themselves, so absolutely convinced that they were, they were the people, they knew their stuff, that when they passed a law, it could never be changed. It sat there, which is why some laws had a time limit on them. You know? Now, in our country, any law can be changed. Any law. The incoming... The, uh, the government that now is cannot bind the hands, they say, of the government that comes in. If the opposing party put it in their manifesto, if we come to government, we will change that, we will revoke that. If the population vote them into power, they can do it. 
they can change any law of the United Kingdom because that's the way our government works. But they had laws that couldn't be changed. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. They knew that Daniel prayed, so they concocted a law that for a month no one could pray or ask of anything, anyone but Darius. Darius was clearly flattered by this, yeah? You know, rulers aren't necessarily smarter than the rest of us. They can be deceived too, and particularly when you appeal to someone's pride, you can deceive them. Yeah? You can deceive them by flattery, by boosting them up. So he signs it off. It's written up in those seals. By the way, there are seals, clay seals, cylinders, in the British Museum by Hoban, where you can see the things that Cyrus wrote. And, there's, and for years, those critics, they used to call them crit- Bible scholars. They weren't, they were critics. They said, oh, there was, never was a Belshazzar. Do you know what they found? A seal with Belshazzar's name on it. <laughs> In the time of Darius and so on and so on. Yeah. Daniel 6 was 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he knew the law had been published. Listen to this. It almost moves me to tears. He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. I'll go and do what I always do. But there's a law against it. I will, all, I will go and do what I always do. There is a law of conscience of doing what you know pleases God, which is far more important than any law any government can pass. We will live by that law and if necessary break their law. However, when we do so, we will accept the consequences. In other words, I would rather die trusting, believing, honoring God than live and dishonor him according to your law. Daniel heard the law. Went home, left the palace, went home, opened his window to Jerusalem and did what he did every day of his life. Prayed to the Lord. It's how he lived. It's how they got through the, the, the challenge of Daniel 1 and 2, the food. Yeah? They didn't want to eat the meat that had been offered to idols and, 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 and they didn't want to be drinking the king's wine. And they, they, so they, they asked for vegetables and water and, and they thrived on it because God was with them. The matter of principle. You think, well, I, I wouldn't have made that a matter of principle. That's fine, but they did because they had a conscience about it. And they would rather live in good conscience, honoring God. Paul says in, twice in the epistles how fiercely he defended his conscience. Rather die than offend his conscience. Rather be thrown into prison than do something that he knew he should, you know, shouldn't be doing or stop doing something he knew he should be doing. Daniel knows the penalty for breaking the law, but he does what he's always done, the way he's lived since he was a youth. Depending on the Lord, asking of him, receiving from him, and 
Let me say again, some human laws need to be broken for the sake of conscience before God. However, when we do so, we do it knowingly and we'll accept the consequences. Then these men, verse 11, assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. <laughs> Got him. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who presents a petition, sorry, any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king, I don't know, puffed his chest up. I don't know what he did. Answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. At that moment, Darius realizes he's been fooled. He's been hoodwinked through flattery into sentencing his trusted friend Daniel to death. Can you imagine the, how that felt? I've, I've, I've done him in. The guy that I, I was going to make prime minister, my right-hand man, this old, wise, godly man who just comes out with wisdom. I ask him a question, he gives me, he doesn't tell me what I want to hear, he gives me the good answers that, that help me to rule this place. I've sentenced him to death. The king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. I love that phrase. He was greatly displeased with himself. We would say he was disgusted with himself. Shamed of what he'd done. And set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And it says in Scripture, he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He spent all day trying to devise a way around this. You know, do I put Daniel in a box and put him in the lion's den? Or do I, you know, how do I do this? Then these men approached the king and said to the king, No, no, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. See? So they go there and tell him to obey his own law. Sorry, I've said a lot of things already. So, this so the king gave the command. How reluctant was that? Oh, okay. Go and find that. They brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king had spoken, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. That's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar said that towards the end of his life. Belshazzar never said anything like that. His Darius, he's not, a, he's not you know, he's just a new boy, new, new, newcomer. He's, the, he's a median who's been put in charge. And and he knows about Daniel, and he knows Daniel's life, and he says, your God, whom you serve, will deliver you. That's an amazing confession of faith from someone who doesn't know God, isn't it? <laughs> then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords. He made them all do it with them, all take responsibility for this, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No musicians were brought before him. His sleep went from him. All night fretting. 
walking up and down about. And the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his messenger. It says angel, but that's what the word means, his messenger. What was that messenger? The messenger of Yahweh? Was it the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnation, appearing alongside Daniel and stilling the lions? May well have been. Remember, Daniel wasn't in the fiery furnace when the, the eternal Son of God turned up and walked with those men. But it seems to me that the eternal Son of God turns up and stands with Daniel in the lion's den that night. He says, my God sent his angel, his messenger, and shut the lion's mouths, so they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. Notice that, firstly before God, and also you, O king. I have done no wrong before you. And I want you to notice something. This is the first time we've heard Daniel speak in this chapter. First time we've heard Daniel speak. When Daniel was accused and even when he was sentenced, Scripture records no word from Daniel. And that, again, is a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus, who did not answer the false witnesses of his trial. He did not answer the Sanhedrin or Pilate unless he was ordered to do so. When the high priest said, do you say nothing? He commanded him to speak. Then Jesus answered. When Pilate asked him a direct question, Jesus answered him. That was, all comes from Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her hearers, he did not open his mouth. Daniel did that. Jesus did that. Why did Daniel do it? Because he was, he didn't know he was at the time, but he was foreshadowing Jesus, one of the prophets foreshadowing Jesus. But it was Darius who said to Daniel, your God, who you serve continually, will deliver you. And after a sleepless night, he comes back and says, has he done it? Has he been able to do it? And Daniel said, my God sent his messenger and shut the lion's mouth. Now, sorry, the king was exceedingly glad for him. <laughs> What, what does a king look like in his robes and in his chain and all the rest of it when he gets exceedingly glad? Does he do a hop, skip, and jump? Does he, does he shake his hands in the air? I don't know. But, but he was exceedingly glad. Now, when people are glad, they usually do something. Oh, I'm very happy about that. Yes. <laughs> they usually do something, don't they? I mean, for goodness sake, if England had won the World Rugby Cup... <laughs> oh, well done, chaps. Prince Harry would have been jumping over the seats. <laughs> Wouldn't he? Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him. Shades of da Daniel chapter four, 3. The fiery furnace, no smell of burning. The only thing that burnt was their ropes, their bonds. Daniel was taken up of the den. No injury was found on him because he believed in his God. And then the king gave command. This is where you get some Old Testament pretty uh, uh, fierce 
uh, judgment here. The king gave the command. They brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the lion, in den of lions. Them, their children and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they even came to the bottom of the den. Daniel is brought out unharmed and his enemies are then made to suffer the death that they thought to bring upon Daniel. Darius has moved with pity for Daniel, but it's is ruthless in removing these troublemakers from his court. Then, verse 25, Dan, Darius, King Darius wrote, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wrote. You must honor this God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. I don't even know if this guy knows the prophecies that Daniel's already brought and Daniel's going to bring even more on that subject soon. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Hallelujah. That's why we've been praying for people who are sick, isn't it? He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Footnote, verse 28. So this Daniel, the same one that we've been reading about in the whole book, the same one who was a teenager challenging the authority of the king, and God protected him. This Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian, because Cyrus was over Darius. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius issues a decree that Yahweh, the God of Daniel, is to be honored. Now, the law was set for a period of 30 days. After that, you could go back to praying to your gods. Yeah? And after that, it would expire. And since Daniel had already faced the death penalty and survived, he could go on breaking the law because he'd already faced the penalty. Yeah? And so he goes back to his normal habit, thing he'd done every day of his life. He prayed three days every day to the Lord, looking through the window towards Jerusalem, praying for the peace of his people. Daniel receives his mention in the Hebrews 11 Academy of Faith. I was thinking of, you know, Academy Awards that kind of thing. It's like a, you know, they award all these people. Hebrews 11 is like the Academy Awards for the people of faith of the Old Testament. Have you ever read it? Okay, I'm not going to give it to all of you, but let me read from it, verse 32. There's a bit of it coming up there. What more shall I say, writes Paul, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Just stop there a moment. Daniel, through faith, stopped the mouths of lions. But, it, but the messenger of the Lord did it. Yes, but he stood there in faith that God would deliver him, and God answered and rewarded his faith and did deliver him. Right? So the shorthand way of saying that is that is God did it, but Daniel's faith in God brought God to the action to do it. Right? God's faith, God, God, God honored his faith. 
Daniel's trusted him. Stop the mouths of lions. Quench the violence of fire. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, isn't it? They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. That's all four of them in Daniel 2. All four of them escaping the edge of the sword. Even while the execution party is coming for them. Daniel says, hold on a minute, let me see the king. You know? Out of the weakness, sorry, Daniel 1, out of weakness were made strong became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. I'm reading this whole chunk here because I want you to notice this because there's, a, there's, a, there's two sites. They were rescued. They were delivered. They escaped the edge of the sword. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And the next paragraph says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. There's a legend that that was Isaiah. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Some, by faith, honoring God, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They were too good for this world, he says. These destitute, afflicted people. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They did not inherit what God promised. God having provided something better for us, for us new covenant, Christ-centered believers, that they should not be made perfect, mature, complete, without us. Therefore, we also, this is Hebrews 12, it goes on, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which is really these, these examples of the Old Testament saints, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Magnificent passage of Scripture. But in there, Daniel and his three friends are honoured in that Academy Award list of faith. Okay, some points. Practical points. As far as we know, this was Daniel's first severe test of faith since he was a teenager. His three friends, when they were still in their early 20s, probably, if we get the timing right, maybe no more than 30, they faced the, the fiery furnace. Daniel wasn't there, he was in Babylon. They were out in the sticks, as we say, with this, with this big idol, this big image. And, you know. So they went through the fire, literally through the fire. Isaiah prophesied decades, a couple of centuries almost before, when you pass through the fire, I will be with you. Well, they proved it. But Daniel wasn't there. We don't know other things that happened in Daniel's life. Scripture 
records this, that after the test, or the tests of Daniel 1 and 2, the next severe test of his faith that we find Daniel facing is this one. Life and death issue. Listen, we, we, we probably face all sorts of problems in life, but not many of them are life and death, are they? Yeah? We need a sense of perspective sometimes. You know? Oh, this is really dreadful, really, really bad. Now I can think of a hundred things far worse. You know? we, we, kind of over, we kind of overplay things sometimes, don't we? We, we, we let them be so big to us, and actually they're not. You know, there's bigger things than that around, folks. You know? But this is the first time. Now in his 80s, Daniel faces a life and death test of faith. Here's another thought for you. Daniel lived among wolves before he spent the night among the lions. The two governors that were equal with him and the satraps, let me say it carefully, <laughs> were determined to see him thrown down and destroyed. He spent time amongst the wolves. Wolves are not as powerful as lions and they attack in packs. And scripture again and again uses wolves to portray our human enemies, those who are against us and attack us. And those two governors and the 120 satraps were certainly wolves snapping around Daniel, seeking to destroy him. Though in another place, David in one of the Psalms, a couple of Psalms, talks about my, my soul My hearing aids had gone funny for a minute. I thought, well, no, it's, the, it's the box. Wolves and lions. Here's what Jesus said. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You're going to be humble, believing people in the middle of people who really, really want to see you destroyed. Does this talk to anybody about how life sometimes is? You've got wolves around you. Don't be surprised. It's the deal. It's the world we live in. It's the, it's the pattern of this age. The wicked continue until the day that Jesus comes. They increase, they bear, they bear fruit. The wheat and the tares grow together until the final harvest. So there is no point at which the world will become all lovely and good and beautiful. So it's a theory of the second coming I've never subscribed to, that somehow it all gets wonderful and wonderful. You know, it all goes away and the world's a beautiful place and then Jesus comes. No, 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 it carries on being bad until Jesus comes. That's the way I see it in the words of Jesus. So in this time, in this age, Jesus says to us, it's still true, 2,000 years later, I send you out like sheep among the wolves. All right? There are going to be people who don't like you because they don't like your faith. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We've got our heads screwed on and our eyes open. We know what's going on. We're not being fooled. Wise as serpents. Wise as the people who are trying to deceive us and trick us, we know their trickery. We see it. Yet, in responding to their plots, 
and their intrigues and their backbiting and their, their, their anger and their vengeance and all of these things. Guess what Jesus tells us to do? Be harmless as doves. Bring harm to no one. When they revile you, don't revile back. When they misuse you, forgive them. When they speak all things against you, falsely, rejoice that you're being persecuted for his name's sake. You say, oh, that's otherworldly, Dave. That's out of this world. Yes, it is. It's heavenly, isn't it? It's Christ-like. We are called to follow Jesus, you know. This is the life he calls us to, that we live right in the middle of the wolf pack, wise as serpents, knowing what's going on. We're not fooled, even by false flattery, yeah? Because that's the dangerous one. People appeal to your pride, you know. But we are harmless in the way we conduct ourselves among them. We're not taking vengeance. We're not looking to get our own back. We're not spinning a story about them because they're spinning a story about us. We're following Jesus and following his instructions. Okay. Our God still shuts the mouths of the lions. Our God shuts the mouth of the lions. I want you to listen to Paul from 2 Timothy 4. I don't think I put this in. No. 2 Timothy 4. I'll come to Peter in a minute. 2 Timothy 4. Paul writes probably... One of his last letters, maybe maybe his last letter to Timothy. At my first, that's his first appearance before Nero. No one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me. Patterns of, you know, in the furnace, in the lion's den. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. He's making a reference to Daniel, isn't he? And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul calls a particular attack of the enemy here the mouth of the lion. He might have been referring to something that was being done by Jewish, Greek, or Roman authorities rather than to the devil himself, but he's clearly making a reference to Daniel 6. Now, Look at Peter with me here. I'm going to read it from verse 5. 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For, and this turns up again and again, three times in the Testament, twice in the Old Testament, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, people like to get their tattoos and they like to have their mottos on their cars and they like to have their fridge magnets. Get that one. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you make that a motto for life, you'll do a lot better than a lot of people. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care, all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Straight on, Peter writes this, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the same faith, in the faith, sorry, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice what scripture says there. 
the devil makes up as if to be a lion. Because who's the real lion? Oh, come on. <laughs> Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't even have to fight. He just roars and things happen. The lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation. The Lord who delivered Daniel and whom Paul thanked for his deliverance out of the mouth of the lion can keep and deliver us from the stalking of the enemy, from the circling of the walls, from whatever you want to describe it as. And there'll be moments in our lives when we'll know the deliverance of God. But actually, the keeping of God isn't always to take us out of it, but to sustain us through it. And this is something I've often said. We think that salvation and rescue is all about, get me out of here, Lord, get me out of here. And yet, again and again, he says, I will take you through something. The keeping may last a long while, more than one night in the lion's den for Daniel, more than Paul's imprisonment, maybe, for a a few years. Joseph spent 14 years in prison. We know of believers around the world today are enduring long and fierce trials of their faith. But the Lord is there and our keeper, our defender, our protector. I've heard many Christian leaders misquote and misuse Psalm 105 verse 15. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Let me read it to you from verse 12. When they were few in number, this is speaking about Israel, the people of God, the children of God, indeed very few and strangers in the land, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he, God, permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying to the kings about his people, do my anointed ones, do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Who is that verse talking about? Some Christians or all Christians? Come on, be brave. All. 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 Yet some Christian leaders use those scriptures to say, you can't criticize me. You mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't challenge me about anything because don't touch the Lord's anointed. I want to give them a slap around the face when they say things like that. Get off your horse, man. Get down off that. You don't belong on the throne. Only God belongs on the throne. That scripture is about all believers. It's about you. The Lord says to the unbelieving world, to the wolves, to the people who cause you trouble in your life, don't you touch them. Don't you do them harm. Because he'll hold them to account for it. That's why we don't take vengeance. Vengeance is his. We leave it to him. That scripture refers to the whole body of God's people. Not to just some. Not just some kings and prophets and pastors. To all Christian people. And then there's a lovely verse in Zechariah 2 verse 8 where the Lord says, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He who touches you pokes him in the eye. I don't like being poked in the eye. I don't recommend it. People talk about poking the eye with a sharp stick. I'd, I'd, I'd grab your hand and do you, do you cause you a bit of pain if you tried to do that to me. You know, I'd say, no, 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 no. You're not doing that. 
I'm sorry I just broke your finger, but I really, you're not doing that. He who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. It means the, the pupil. Yeah. You're a pretty foolish person if you think you can poke God in the eye and get away with it. Yeah? That's the picture the scripture is giving us there. So, not only is God with you and defending you, but every bit of harm that is planned against you, God sees. Every word that is spoken against you as you live in good conscience for God, where you are in your family, in your workplace, God marks. He will hold, will call back all of those things to account in the future. Unless that person comes to faith and is forgiven. That's why you pray for them, to be delivered from his judgment. But it's up to him. Another one is this one. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Do you know that's one of God's laws? Unbreakable, unshakable? You can't invest in something without it having a return, good or bad. You reap what you sow. Daniel's life of devotion reaped deliverance from the Lord and also amazing prophetic revelation. Those revelations didn't come out of nowhere. They came into a prayer life, into a devoted life. As Daniel was praying and seeking God, God spoke to him. Prayer and prophecy belong together. His enemies' murderous intent against him reaped their own destruction. Sadly, even their wives and kids as well. Sin has terrible consequences. You reap what you sow. And again, people think, oh, well, you know, I don't want to think about that one. That's not, surely that's not always true. It's always true. You reap what you sow. There's only one break, breakout clause from that. That's the grace of God. To be delivered from your sin, to be delivered from your guilt, to be delivered from your offenses through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ. To be brought over into God's kingdom, delivered from your darkness. Saved from your sin. It's the only breakout from you reap what you sow. Daniel's test prepared him for more. This may, this may be relevant to someone here today. Daniel's test prepared him for more. When we read on in Daniel 7 and through to chapter 12, there are later revelations there given to Daniel. When he's in his 80s, I keep saying that, I know, I'm trying to encourage myself to, you know. <laughs> uh, not quite, but heading that way. Who would have said when Babylon fell, that kingdom was gone, that Daniel would become like the prime minister of the next kingdom under Darius and Cyrus? And who would have said that a man of Daniel's age would receive the most profound revelation about the timing of the coming of Jesus. But that's what happens. That's what happens. And I want to suggest this to you. I, I believe it to be generally true. Because Daniel passed the test of faith, God could trust him with the revelation. It's not, it's not like a reward. It's not like a payback. 
But because Daniel did not, did not deny the Lord, in that sense, but faithfully continued to serve him, at pain of death, he stood ready for God to give him what came next in the next few chapters. That test did something in Daniel. It prepared him. And my final thought before we break bread together is this. Many of us imagine, fondly imagine a life without pressure. Oh, if only it was just all easy. There's no pressure, there's no difficulty. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful? I wanted to give you some lessons from biology. We as human beings physically advance and grow because of pressure. We're not made for weightlessness. Astronauts on a space station have to use elastic bands and all sorts of devices to exercise or they lose physical strength. They come back as weaklings to planet Earth. In the, in the natural world, the way we live, resistance to gravity and weight or weights makes us strong physically. You know? When you can no longer stand up and you're falling down, you, you've kind of lost life. And those who want to be stronger in their bodies, not just put on muscles to be seen, but actually want to be able to lift the heavier weights and get, get a thorough job done, what do you do? You put resistance. For 20 kilos, 30 kilos, 40 kilos. You increase the weight because the weight is what trains you to be strong. We as human beings are designed to deal with weight, with pressure. And God designs us to live as human beings in our heart, in our spirit, in our soul, in the same sort of way. I know it's a cliche, it's not Bible, it's, it's a kind of paraphrase of some biblical ideas that, that people have made and to phrase and it's sung, it's been sung, I don't know, any number of country and western songs I can think of. That do. It's the hard times that make you strong. It's broadly true. Unless you cave in on them. Unless you just try to hide in a corner. Unless you, you try to run away. But if you face the hard times with the help of God, if you trust God to help you in that situation, you will come through it, not just as a survivor, but as stronger. We grow on pressure. So trials of faith are not strangers to us. That's why James and John, James and Paul and Peter all have a similar message for, at times for the believers. What you're going through, and Jesus, sorry, yes, in Revelation with the seven letters through John. I thought it was John as well. I'm thinking of the seven letters in Revelation. Look, you're going through this. This isn't, this isn't, you know, unheard of. This isn't. I don't know about it. How, what? How did this happen? Tell me about it. This is part of the plan. You're going to go through this. You're going to come through that. He who endures to the end, I will reward, said Jesus. Go and read the letters in Revelation. I'm going to bring you through this. You stay faithful to me and I'll, I'll reward you with this and I'll help you with that. When we come through, we come through stronger and we come through standing prepared for more. Not just more pressure, no. More of what God wants to do.
There are some things, here I close. I'll even close my notes so you know I'm finished. <laughs> there are some things that may be laid up ahead of you which you will only encounter by going through what you're going through now and coming through stronger and more prepared. That was the case with Daniel and I'm suggesting it may be the case with you too. So don't quit on it. Don't run away from it. Find the grace and help of God to just do exactly what Peter said. Actually, there is a scripture I want to put up there. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's Timothy, actually. Could it have been? Can you make that your confession? Your statement of faith today. What you're going through or what you, you might begin to go through. That through that time, through that experience, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and he will preserve me and keep me for his heavenly kingdom to the final outcome. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you were with the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. I believe that it was you who was with Daniel in the lion's den, keeping him company through his night of trial. You were with Paul in a prison cell. His confession was, but the Lord was with me. And you, according to your promise, are with us, even to the end of the age, to the very last day of time. You covenant with us that you will be with us. And you are not a mere observer of our lives, but you are our helper. You cause us to stand. You cause us to do more than survive. You cause us to come through stronger, more prepared, more open to you, more ready to receive from your hand what is the next thing, the next step, the next part of our growth to maturity, to becoming more and more like Jesus. Father, forgive us for complaining about the hardships of life. And stir our hearts to press into you, to cry to you for your sustaining grace. We pray every day, maybe even three times a day, as Daniel did. And find that you are never away from us. That the distance between us is, can be measured by just the breath of a prayer. Lord Jesus, commend ourselves to you so that in our lives, you may be glorified, even if we live in the darkest of times and we spend our days amongst the wolves or the lions or whatever else we want to call them. You tell us to shine like lights in dark places. You told us we'd be living like sheep among wolves. God, instruct our hearts and give us grace and wisdom so we are wiser serpents. We're not fooled by anything. But we are harmless people. We do no harm. 
but rather we bless and we demonstrate your grace. And I want to take a moment before we break bread together to say to you this morning, if you haven't submitted your life to the Lord Jesus, you haven't signed over your the deeds to your life. You know, you know when you sell a car or a house, you have to sign it away. You know, usually it's because you're buying another one, so that's why you do it. Becoming a Christian is a bit like that kind of transaction. You sign yourself over to Jesus so that you trade in your old life with all its old habits, with all of its controlling influences and gain a new life in him. You become a new creature, a new creation. But you have to give up who you are and what you are and all you've been to gain that new identity in him that is wonderful and pure and great and glorious, but you, you've, got to, you've got to ditch the old to grab the new. Why don't you take a moment right now to say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to do that right now, right now, here today. I surrender myself to you. I sign myself into your hands. Maybe you've even kind of strayed away from walking as a Christian for a long time. Today's the day. Today's the day. Get back on track. Just talk to him. Open your heart to him. Take a moment. Do it now. Today's the day. May the Lord hear the prayers of every humble heart. Today we submit ourselves unto the mighty hand of God. Because you resist the proud that give grace to the humble. Oh God, here we are, we humble ourselves. For more of your grace we pray. Amen. Would those who are serving please come to come up here? I don't know if we've got anybody we've chosen to serve.